welcome back to the podcast series Women Leading Change by the Sahel and West Africa Club SWAC Secretariat at the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. SWAC produces innovative evidence-based analysis to inform public policies in line with transformations taking place in the West African region. This podcast series tells the stories of women as civil society actors, activists, authors, leaders, health and humanitarian workers, as well as entrepreneurs in West Africa. They provide examples of how their work is driving transformative change. My name is Dr. Jumo Ayondele, and I am delighted to be your host for this podcast. Our special guest today is Ms. Efua Edichidi. She is one of the co-conveners of the Civil Society Organization's Cluster on Decentralization and Citizen Participation. She is also the Advocacy Manager for SOS Children's Villages in Ghana. Welcome, Efua. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Jumo. Pleasure is mine to be here as well. Yes, let's get into it because we have a lot of interesting conversations that we need to unpack for this podcast series. And I want to first begin with your involvement in gender advocacy. So you've been involved in gender advocacy in Ghana for the past two decades. And SWAC has a report on gender inequality in West African social institutions. This report provides evidence that West African women face high levels of discriminations in terms of family laws, in terms of, you know, the limited measures that are there to provide or to protect them from violence, limited decision-making power, as well as restricted access to resources and assets. Now, given your expertise, given your advocacy um, measures and work, can you shed some light on some of these discriminatory practices? and how they especially affect the everyday lives of Ghanaian women, as well as the advancement of gender equality at all levels of society. Okay, Jumo. Um, first of all, I'll say that one of the major challenges that women face in Ghana is GBV, the gender-based violence, as we term it. And that is mostly family-based. If I say family-based, what I mean is that even if um, the systemic structures to address that are in place, you realize that advocate, gender advocates in, in Ghana are not going anywhere. Because at the end of the day, we lead these women, we educate them on how to address these issues. The systems are turning around to make sure that things work out. But this very woman gets back home into the traditional setting, is called by her parents, is called by her in-laws into the room. This is your husband. Do you want him jailed? What do you want to do with this? Can you go withdraw the case? And so this very woman who um, we go through a, through a lot to lead to, to seek justice, comes back the next day and doesn't want to continue with the case. So I will say that is the, um, the highest uh, form of discrimination that we have. It is no longer um, a systemic failure. Ghana has actually put in structures in place. We have DOFSU, that is the um, Domestic Violence and Victim Support Unit, 
well, for the government a civil actor that addresses women in distress through GBV. And then we have the police one, that is the Women and Juvenile Unit of the Police Service, which is now also called the Victim Support Unit of the Ghana Police Service. They do um, the, the criminal aspect of what Dovsu, which I mentioned earlier, does. Unfortunately, they also face the same problems in situations where a woman goes to report the woman's family, the man's family follows her later and they hold her. Do you want your husband to be jailed? What are you trying to do? You're an African woman. We went through it. It is normal for um, your husband to hit you. And so all that we're doing on the ground to make sure that gender-based violence is, ad is addressed comes back to point zero, if you mm. understand what I mean. Another challenge we are facing is a political participation of women. Yeah. In the political manifestos put out by most of these political parties before they voted into power, some of their manifestos talk about making deliberate efforts so that 30% of the positions available in their political parties are occupied by women. But what do we see? Nothing happens. They, they voted into power. Nothing happens. The few women who are into uh, politics themselves do not create the environment for other women to go there. Take, for instance, in 2019, when um, our CSOs cluster on decentralization and participation engaged the Speaker of Parliament during his breakfast forum. He normally has this forum once a year to address a pertinent issue. And in 2019, he chose to address the affirmative action bill, engage civil society actors as to what we can do together to make sure that this bill is passed. We passed invitation to women in parliament at that time. Believe you me, most of them did not attend this forum. This is a forum to draw jaw and to, add, to, to, to look at ways to push government to pass this bill. But the women who we have campaigned for and slowly got to parliament to open the door for others, most did not. The question that I have is the implications of the non-passage of the bill on women participation, especially when we're thinking about the upcoming district elections that are this year, as well as the presidential and parliamentary elections that are next year. Um, so I wanted to unpack a little bit of that with you know, the affirmative action bill. If it doesn't get passed this year, what are the implications of ele on elections? If it does pass, you know, by stroke of luck, what are said implications? I'll talk about um, the first implication of non-passage is the continued gender imbalance and limited representation. Because, you know, with parliament, you need the numbers to make an impact, right? And so if we are not deliberate in pushing other women into parliament or enticing other women to go out there and um, uh, register to be voted for. It means that all the work that we have done for the past 16 years, it still hasn't gotten anywhere. It means that we're still marking time, right? It means that we are yet to return from Beijing. It means that continuous barriers will be present 
we, we, it, it means that all our work over the past years is still zero. But like I said earlier, if we, the women who are what, breaking the glass ceiling, who are being pushed to represent others, are at least coming back to motivate other women to get there, at least we'll see that we are making an effort. But that doesn't happen. And if this bill is not passed, this will continue. But if the bill is passed, it means that most of these political parties will at least make a deliberate effort bound by the bill to make sure that 30% of those they're presenting to be voted for are women. I think you pointed out something that's very interesting about women supporting women and pushing mm-hmm. more women into parliament. And I think this goes back to the very first question, right? Which is the discrimination that we see. And I want to unpack a little bit why we haven't necessarily seen that support from women who have broken the glass ceiling to, you know, bringing more women into the fold in making sure that at least 30% of parliament and, you know, the, the seats at the district level are occupied by women. Um, so if you can break that down a little bit, does this go back to, you know, the patriarchal society of Ghana, for example, or, you know, some of the discriminatory practices that we have seen against women, or is it something else entirely? It is, it is a combination of that and something different. What different am I talking about? I'm talking about women there. Women who are in parliament now, women who are district assembly members now, had to use their own funds to campaign to get there. There is no deliberate state funding for women. And these are some of the issues that we were talking about. And then they'll come out to say, the Patrick here will come out to say, "Uh uh-uh, but we raise our own funds to fund our own political campaigns. So why don't you raise funds to, to do political campaigns by yourself. How easy is it for women, right, to achieve economic independence? How many women? And so the problem becomes that once this member of parliament is able to go through fundraising processes, go through the rigorous campaign processes to become elected into parliament, her focus is not what? Bringing along other women to also want to empower them and also empower them enough to also want to seek election into office. What then does the, the one that the problem becomes is that she is looking forward to the next elections. Just when she's elected into yeah. office, she's waiting, getting prepared, making arrangements for funding for the next yes. elections. If she doesn't do that, the next elections, she's not going to get money. And that doesn't only affect women. In general, it affects her constituents as well because she's voted into power and for a long time she doesn't even visit her constituency. She has to stay answerable to people who are financing her campaign. She, she's not, she doesn't have any free will. How do we address this state funding of political parties? It's not mm. simple. I think that one of the reasons why this bill keeps going to the technical committee, back to cabinet, to the ministry, to cabinet, to attorney general's office is lack of political will. We are in a patriarchal society. People feel that if this bill is passed, it's going to open more doors for women who they feel are already empowered. Oh, wow. This is a 
great segue to the next question, which is some of the challenges that gender equality faces. And we've started to tease that out a, a little bit. And the question that I have is for your CSO, right? What are some of the challenges? What are specific examples that you can think of about that you face or that you have faced in transforming discriminatory social institutions and in advancing gender parity? I mean, yes, there are challenges, but they've also been some some headway, right? But I am very, very okay. curious as to how you've been able to transform, if you've been able to transform any social institutions with specific example. I will say that we've made a lot of headway at the grassroots level. And um, before then, if you go to our rural areas, right, the, the prevalence of early child marriages was open. I mean, people didn't have anything, but we've targeted people who perpetrated this, right? For example, if you go to the northern part of the country, as soon as a girl is 15, they're planning marrying her out. And so her education is not a priority. But through, you know, the funny thing is that Ghana has an inclusive education policy that is sitting on the shelves of the um, uh, MMDAs. By MMDAs, I mean the Metropolitan Municipal and District Assemblies. Now, if you go to the grassroots level, you go to this district assemblies and ask the uh, social workers there how far with the inclusive education policy. Some of them will ask you, ah, do we have an inclusive education policy? And these are supposed to be the implementers. So if the implementer is not aware of the policy, how do they get to implement it? So deliberately, what we are doing is that we are tackling the end users as well as the implementers. We're going down to the grassroots level to let the parents of these children know that, look, look at women who have been educated and how far they're making it. Wouldn't you want your daughter, okay, to be on a world platform rather than being married to a man five times her age and becoming a fourth wife or, and you'll be amazed that the men at the grassroots level who were hither to the perpetrators have embraced this. And so for uh, even with SOS Children's Villages, for instance, you go to Northern Ghana now, we have uh, inclusive education committees uh, of which majority are men. And during a recent baseline, it's been discovered that it is rather the mothers of these girls who are perpetrating it now. Why? Because they need to showcase their new fabrics that they've bought. They need to showcase their new laces, their new traditional clothing because their children are getting married. But thankfully, we've made a lot of headway because in this patriarchal society, we say the men are the head of the homes. And so if Dealing with the women, um, empowering them economically, creating the awareness, educating them to take their girl child education serious is now working. Now we have targeted the men. And it's so working. Every man wants the child to do well. And luckily for us, these children go to school and they're doing very well. So for the grassroots now, a lot of change has happened. Another one too is people resisting change. They, they're used to certain norms, right? They used to certain norms that why should me, a woman with a husband, go to work? 
My husband has married me. He's supposed to provide for me. So I don't understand what you people are talking about. I mean, sometimes CSOs go to the communities to, to go work and they drive us out because they think that we're trying to turn them against the men. The most stressful challenge that we as CSOs have is that we don't see each other as collaborators. Rather, we see each other as competition. And so you probably see a call by one of these donor agencies out and you're talking to your fellow gender CSOs to come together and apply as co-leads. Mm -mm. They don't want to. There is a funding opportunity. And instead of collaborating, we rather go breaking each other so we get the funding. And so sometimes donors get confused a bit. They say, ah, aren't we both supposed to be working together? Yeah, that's very sombering about the challenges that you're facing, as well as some of the headway and some of the successful efforts that, that you have implemented in really advancing um, gender equality in Ghana. And um, I would say like the very last question I want to ask is the role of Ghanaian women. What are your thoughts on the role of Ghanaian women and girls, especially when we think about transforming and when we are thinking about the development of Ghana? The first one is education. We need to empower ourselves by educating ourselves. When we are asking for a space at the table, right, and it is offered to us and we do not have the requisite knowledge, how do we go about it? So we need to build ourselves to be able to attain economic independence. That is the only way we can get there. I think that we also need to encourage women entrepreneurship because some of these women that we are talking about have passed the age of formal education. And so we can sort of make some arrangements for them to have informal adult education as well as teach them the vitals of business, teach them business management informally, empower them, encourage them to join this village savings and loans, you know, encourage them to have grouping savings groups, encourage them to add value to whatever they, they're bringing out, right? For instance, if somebody is processing starch, you process at the local level and people from the city come to the village, buy this starch, go repackage it, label it very well and sell. What stops us women from educating and teaching these women how to add value to this product right from source? Another thing that I think we can do is that we have women farmers. Unfortunately, land ownership by women is another topic to be discussed another day. Women are farming, yes, but land ownership, no. If women have to farm, they have to depend on men. They have to get permission from the men that they marry to all the men who are leaders in the community. They have to lease these lands. That means that whatever harvest they make, they have to share with the landowner or pay for the land. So then why don't we work on the system, all right? This, some of these are systemic pressures. Why don't we relax this pressure so that women can be encouraged to own lands as well and roller? Because if you go to most of um, our rural areas, majority of women there are farmers. And then also, I think that we also need to educate women 
about their sexual and reproductive health. There are women who don't have any proper source of livelihood, but they have 13 to 15 children. And they sit at home, you know. We need to educate yeah. our women. And I always make this very clear. I always make it clear that if I talk about education, I'm not talking about formal education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These people are past formal education. So empower them towards economic independence. Yeah. Empower them towards adding value to whatever they're already doing. So our Dr. James Kweji Agri wasn't wrong when he said, if you educate a woman, you educate a nation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I really liked what you said about not just thinking about education in a very formal sense. There's a need to, you know, understand the informality and the informal sector, as well as build on that in order to promote entrepreneurship. And, you know, these are very, very, very great points in really thinking about transforming and developing um, Ghana. Um, so with that said, this brings us to the end of our podcast episode. I want to thank our guest again, Ms. Efua Edichidi. My name once again is Dr. Jumo Ayandele, your host. For more information on the publications referenced, they can be found on SWAC's MAPTA platform or indeed on the OECD SWAC website. Till next time. <music>